This is the Morning Rush. Coming up on today's show, the Pirates pull off one of the worst plays I have ever seen in my entire life. The NBA sends a strong message to fans who act like idiots. Speaking of the NBA, we'll recap the night on the hardwood and on the ice. A former Mountaineer shuts down the Yankees. And Joe Shuda, coming up in the 7 o'clock hour, another Rush Friday feature, as he talks with Kevin Keating, who is an autograph authenticator and prolific autograph collector. At one point, Kevin had 12,000 autograph baseballs. That's amazing. <laughs> 12,000. I got like two. 12,000. Collecting autographs since he was a youngster. And they'll talk about his book and getting autographs and authenticating autographs and all that stuff. Again, coming up uh, in the uh, 7 o'clock hour. The book, by the way, is Waiting for a Sign, Volume 1. So all that and more coming up in the next two hours of today's show. Good morning to you. How the heck are you? So glad to have you on board. So glad you could take some time to tune in and hang out as we kick off another essential work day, wrapping up another essential work week. Several ways to get involved on the show, as always. Our Twitter pages at WCMD Morning Rush. Uh, my Twitter page at Rush Tony C. Our Facebook page at WCMD Cumberland Radio. All three of those pages free and open to the public. You like them, follow them, and uh, at any time you want to, get involved. Send me a message. Drop me a line. The DMs are open, as the kids say. Get involved. I want to hear from you. Question, comment, opinion, whatever. Taking your calls on the rush line, 301-759-2628. Your chance to dial and dance. Shamo 301-759-2628. And, of course, our podcast page on the free Podbean app where we upload every show every day, take out all the commercials, condense it just for you. So if you miss uh, part of today's show or a previous show, it's all right there on the podcast page. All right. As always, uh, lots to get to today, so let's uh, get things started with a uh, rock around the region. I want to rock! And we start with Major League Baseball, where the Orioles' losing streak is now up to 10 games after a 5-1 loss to the White Sox in Chicago. Your mean Mercedes homered and had a two-run single for Chicago. Freddie Galvis hit a solo homer for Baltimore's only run. Trey Mancini was hit by a pitch. In the first inning, left the game with a bruised right elbow. X-rays were negative. The O's 10-game slide, their longest since they dropped 10 straight in June of 2019. Elsewhere, the Cubs were looking to extend the Pirates' losing streak by completing a three-game sweep in Pittsburgh. There's a swing and a fly ball hit deeply out to center field. Reynolds back to the warning track, running out of room. He leaps. It's gone. A home run by Chris Bryant. Just over the wall in dead center field. And the home run ball 
gives the Cubs a 1-0 lead. The call on the Pirates Radio Network, 5-3 the final as the Cubs get the win and the sweep, handing the Bucks their sixth straight loss. Brian Reynolds, Gregory Polanco, and Michael Perez all homered for the Bucks, but they were all solo homers. Much more on this game in just a bit. And the Nationals and Reds sort of played a doubleheader yesterday in D.C. First, they had to finish a game that was suspended from Wednesday night with the Nationals leading 3-0 after four innings, and they would have built on that lead when play resumed. Big gap right center, second baseman in right field, and that's perfectly placed. No second baseman there, and the Nats have a two-run sixth inning to lead 5-0. Bob Carpenter, the call on Mid-Atlantic Sportsnet 5-3 the final as the Nationals got the win in the regularly scheduled game last night. Sonny Gray pitched six innings of two-hit ball as the Reds won 3-0. In high school baseball, Isaac Uphol struck out 13 in just five innings as Southern won its third straight game 6-4 over Mountain Ridge. Elsewhere, Zach Hollenbeck had a triple, two doubles, and a couple of RBI as Northern beat Allegheny 11-2. Jake Rush threw a complete game five-hitter for the Huskies, who are now 12-1. The victory was also win number 400 for Northern head coach Phil Carr. In high school softball, Alexa Uphold, I don't no relation, spelled differently, uh, struck out 19 as Northern beat Bishop Walsh uh, 3-1. And in college football, the start times and broadcast partners for the first three West Virginia games were announced yesterday. The Mountaineers will open the season Saturday, September 4th at 3.30 at Maryland. And that game can be seen on ESPN. The following Saturday, uh, WVU's home opener against Long Island, whatever. I don't even, who, what is what is a Long Island? Is it a college, university? They got a football team? Anyway, uh, that'll be at 5 o'clock. And good luck finding that game. It'll be on ESPN Plus and something called Big 12 Now. And then the following Saturday, the 18th, the Mountaineers will host uh, Virginia Tech at noon on FS1. So there you go. Then after that, they get into conference play. And that's usually where they go like week to week to week to week. Where you have like no idea when the start times are or anything like that. It's one of the more frustrating things when you do what I do. Because we got to schedule stuff. we got to plan around stuff. And when you don't know the start time, like the week before the game, very frustrating. Anyway, uh, that was your Rock Around the Region brought to you by <laughs> the Caporale Group. Uh, speaking of frustrating. In that Pirates game yesterday, just, just when you think things couldn't get any worse for a struggling last-place team like the Pirates, something happened in the third inning of yesterday's game that won't be forgotten by anybody anytime soon. Just to set things up here, the Cubs are winning one nothing on a Chris Bryant home run, right? Wilson Contreras is on second base. Javi Baez is at the plate with two outs. Very important to remember here that there were two outs 
in that third inning. And then this happened. Here's the 0-2 home and a swing and a ground ball on to third base. He took a neck-high pitch and hit it on the ground to third. Now Baez running back toward home plate. Tag him. Tag him. Tag him quickly. And what did Craig do there? They get a run out of that. And now they got to get the out at first. And they throw it into right field. That's going to get a run for the Cubs. Oh, my. What a loony play. And he's in at second base. Just tag him out. What was that? The Cubs are going to get a run. And Baez is safe at second base on a routine ground out to third. Oh, the Calliope's can be heard from here to Sewickley. The... <laughs> The call on the Pirates Radio Network. It was one of the worst plays I have ever seen on a baseball diamond at any level. Let alone the major league level. It was so it was so stunningly bad. I had to watch it over and over just to make sure I was I was seeing what I saw. The ground ball went to Gonzalez. His throw was offline. That was the first mistake. So Will Craig had to leave the bag to get the throw. He had to go towards home plate to catch the ball, and his foot came off the bag. Baez hits the brakes and starts running back towards home plate, which he has every right to do. It looks funky. It looked weird. Some people automatically assume that he was out because he turned around and ran away from You can do that. You can run back home. Just can't touch home. And then Craig starts chasing him down the line like it's a rundown. Starts chasing him back to home. And you you heard the Pirates announcers yelling, tag him, tag him. No! All you got to do is turn around and touch first base. That's it. There were two outs. Baez starts running back to home. Just turn around. Put your foot on the bag. It's out number three, and the inning is over. And then meanwhile, while Craig is running Baez back home, remember Contreras was on second base. Guess what he's doing? He's rounding third. He's heading home. And he scores. (laughs) Craig flips the ball to catcher Michael Perez. The tag was late. And since Craig threw the ball, guess what? Baez then ran to first where nobody was covering. Adam Frazier got to the bag late. The throw went to right field. (laughs) So Baez took second. And that throw got away. But fortunately, it was actually being backed up. It was one of the more embarrassing things I've ever seen. I mean, the Cubs were in the dugout laughing, carrying on. I thought Rizzo was going to bust a gut laughing so hard. And to make matters worse, then this happened. Here's the 1-0 pitch and a crack bat little pop back of second that's going to drop in front of Reynolds, a base hit, and here comes Baez to score. And that decision has cost two runs now, and they deserve it. Let them have it. That was was such a bad play. (laughs) 
So what should have been a force out at first, an inning-ending force out, turned into two runs for Chicago. It went from a one nothing game to a 3 nothing game. And Pirates manager Derek Shelton said after the game that, you know, uh, we got to get the force out there. Uh, gee, you think? And Shelton said, you know, if Baez runs all the way back home, he could run into the dugout. He could run all the way to the strip district in Pittsburgh. We can walk down and touch first. My question is, how does Will Craig not know that? I understand that Baez hitting the brakes and running back towards home could be a little bit like, like I don't know. It could be confusing. Like when Craig saw it, he was like, what's going on here? Why is he running back? But you're supposed to be a professional baseball player. You're supposed to be a major league professional player. How do you not know that all you have to do is turn around and just touch for? And it's not like the throw was that much offline. I mean, he caught it. He was a couple feet away from first. How do you not know? I, look, they called him up. I would, I would send him back down. I'm sorry. I, I'm sending him back down. That is inexcusable. I don't know how you can reach that level. Like, you would expect that from a little leaguer, right? You might even expect to see that in high school. Because, again, I can kind of understand how you can look and and wonder, why is he running back home? What's going on here? Like, if that happened with a bunch of 9- and 10-year-olds, all right. But you're in PNC Park, man. You're wearing a Pirates uniform. You are a major league ball player. How in the world do you not know with two outs that all you have to do is put your foot on first base? Now, don't get me wrong. If if Gonzalez makes the play and actually makes a good throw, then none of this ever happens. So he has to take a little bit, a little bit of blame, just a little. But that just kickstarted one of the worst things I have ever seen on a baseball diamond. And of course, it would be the Pirates to do it. Why not? Why not just add another turd on the poop pile that is this season and this organization? Chris Muller, who is uh, one of the hosts, I think he's an afternoon host, on uh, 93.7 The Fan, he tweeted this out uh, yesterday. He says, quote, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that what just happened at PNC Park is one of the worst plays in modern baseball history. End quote. And I got to tell you, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Go back. Now, there have been plays that that you had greater consequences. Like you think, uh, like Bill Buckner, right, in the World Series. But that was just an error. Buckner just didn't catch the ball. That wasn't a mental thing. He just, he he pooched it, right? This is a situation where 
Will Craig seemingly had no idea what to do once he caught the ball. Like, like no concept. I mean, you're you're playing first base. You're a first baseman. You, out of anybody, should know. <laughs> All you got to do is touch the bag. It's a force out. Whether Baez was running towards the bag or away from the bag or whether he ran up to the third level to grab some peanuts, it's still a force out. All you got to do is touch the bag. And I don't think it's an exaggeration that that is one of the worst plays we've ever seen. That's going to be shown forever. Javi Baez and Will Craig are going to be linked forever because of that boneheaded play, which cost them two runs. And that's 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 what really you know makes matters worse. It cost them two runs, and they lost the game by two. And this is just the latest in a series of boneheaded plays in Pittsburgh professional sports in the last year. And we talked about the one a couple days ago with Tristan Jari, the goaltender for the Penguins, his horrible pass up the middle of the ice right to an Islander who then scored and beat the Penguins in double overtime. And then you go back to football season, very first play of the Steelers' playoff game against the Browns when Marquise Pouncey snapped the ball 80 feet over Ben Roethlisberger's head, which led immediately to a Browns touchdown, and before you know it, it was 28 to nothing. As a matter of fact, somebody <laughs> somebody on Twitter put like a collage together, and it simply says, pain of being a Pittsburgh sports fan, and it has a, a, a still shot of all three of those plays. It has Roethlisberger running backwards to get that snap, it has Jari getting ready to make that terrible pass, and it has Will Craig for reasons that nobody will ever know chasing Baez back home. Chased him back home from first base. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, I don't know if I can even do it justice just talking about it, trying to explain it on the radio. You have to see it to believe it. How absolutely, utterly terrible that play was. It's a little league play. It's a little league play. That's it. I retweeted via collage of the Pittsburgh uh, failures. And I just retweeted something from, I just mentioned, Chris Muller. There's a still shot of Anthony Rizzo. I don't know who the other Cub is. But they're just losing it in the dugout. They're, it, they're losing it. Rizzo is like doubled over laughing. The other guy is clapping. And I know they're like celebrating Baez for what he did, but they got to be at the same time making fun of Will Craig. Anyway, and they lose the game and they lost six. They lost six straight. I'll give it up for the Pirates though. Even in a bad season, they they can still be entertaining, right? That, that, that that's still entertaining, even in a terrible season where they're going to finish in last place. 20 games out of first place. At least you could say (laughs) they are entertaining. I'm sure it wasn't very funny to them, but it's entertaining. We can sit there and laugh about it. All right. So anyway, let's move on from that. Going to go to a break here shortly. And we got NBA talk coming up 
NHL recap what happened last night. Three games in the NBA, uh, two games in the NHL last night. And the NBA, and, and this is something we've been talking about for a while now, a week or so, about fans behaving badly. And we discussed this yesterday, what happened on Wednesday when some idiot threw a thing of popcorn on uh, Russell Westbrook's head. There were two more incidents that went went uh, went down. What could I possibly say went more times in one sentence? That went down in the NBA playoffs, and we'll talk about that here later in the hour. And I got to say, kudos to the NBA for moving swiftly and sternly. Not as stern as I'd like it to be, at least in a couple incidents, but hopefully this is a start of professional sports leagues taking these clowns seriously and punishing them to the the absolute utmost. Before, it was, like, it was a little fine. right? If you did something, you know, maybe you were... Suspended for the rest of the season. You couldn't go to a game. But the NBA dropping the hammer on at least one fan. And, well, actually all three of them. So we'll talk about that later on in this hour, along with recapping last night's action in the NBA playoffs and the Stanley Cup playoffs. Then, of course, don't forget, 7 o'clock hour, another Rush Friday feature with Joe Shuda. Catching up with the autograph expert, uh, Kevin Keating. All that coming up here. In the morning rush, stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, WCMD. This is the morning rush. I can't remember the last time I saw a play that bad in Major League Baseball. that, That play was... So bad on so many levels. Throwing the ball around, chasing guys back. It was just an absolute mess. I can't remember the last time I saw something that bad. It was like the Bad News Bears. Except they get paid millions to do it, which is a shame. All right, so uh, let's switch gears to the NBA now, some playoff action. Lakers hosted the Suns last night for Game 3. That series tied at a game apiece. Here come the Lakers 3-on-2, down the middle, alley-oop to Davis, slam dunk, and the Lakers putting on a show at Staples Center. The call on 710 ESPN LA, 109-95, the Lakers get the win. To take a 2-1 series lead, Anthony Davis went off again, 34 points and 11 rebounds. LeBron chipped in, 21 points and 9 assists. Now, since last year's playoffs were in the bubble, last night's game was L.A.'s first home playoff game in eight years, which I have a double – that's what the story said. I can't believe that, right? I can't believe that. That's what that's what the story on ESPN said, eight That can't be right. I'll have to check it during the break. Anyway, after a terrible first game of the series, uh, Anthony Davis has now scored 34 points in each of the last two games. No coincidence that they were both Lakers victories. Here he is after the game with the uh, TNT crew. Coming out aggressive. 
and it gets the team going. It gets uh, everybody going. Uh, we make a shot. We playing on both ends of the floor. Um, but it starts with me and my aggressiveness coming out. Um, I told y'all after game one, you know, that was on me, and I just try to make an effort to make sure I don't have one of those performances again. The last minute of the game, it got a little feisty down there. You seen the Devin Booker push the shoulder. What did you think of that play? Can't happen. Can't do that. I mean, they've been chirping as playoff basketball, but you don't push a guy out the air like that. Two hands. It's a dirty play. Dennis could have really got hurt right there. You know, we keep it in between the lines. You know, we, we never want to. And I know, I know Monty, you know, he's not that type of coach. I mean, he's probably going to say something to him, but um, my coach for three years. But, you know, that, that just can't happen. You know, uh, hard fouls, things like that. Playoff basketball, we, we accept those. But, you know, just to blatantly push a guy, you know, with two hands out the air, it's a scary play. You know, um, good thing he's okay, but uh, plays like that, you know, is unacceptable. Well, you guys are up 2-1 right now in this series, took control. Uh, injuries have been a theme in this series right now. You as well, you're, you have a knee issue. How is your condition moving forward? Come on, Chris. You know better. I had to ask. You know I'm good. I'm good. We got two days to uh, rest. Hopefully Kenny is, is okay. I'm not sure what happened with him, but we got two days in between games to, to get back right. Yeah, so Devin Booker got ejected late in that game. Uh, Dennis Schroeder was going up, and Booker gave him the old two-hand shove while he was in the air. Very dangerous play. And Booker got tossed. And I guess that Lakers thing is right. Because I guess it had dawned on me that before they won a title last season, they hadn't even been in the playoffs since 2013. So I guess that's right. That last night was their first home playoff games in eight years. Go figure. Also out west last night, the Nuggets and Blazers played game three of their series in Portland. That series also tied at a 1-1. Denver's Nikola Jokic was his usual dominant self. Nuggets lead it by eight, less than three minutes to go. He's right side of the midcourt circle, guarded by C.J. McCollum. Bounce pass on the elbow to Nikola Jokic, guarded by Covington. How is this going to work for them? Spin move, layup good. <laughs> I love that call. How's it going to work for them? Uh, badly. That call on the Altitude Radio Network, uh, Nick, it's Nicola. I, don't, I always want to call him Nicola. Nicola. Jokic, the Joker, went for 36 points and 11 rebounds. However, it was Austin Rivers who stole the show in the fourth quarter. He hit four three-pointers in that fourth to finish with 21 points. His third straight three uh, put the Nuggets up 102-94 with just under four minutes left to play. After the game, the Joker talked about Rivers' outburst in that fourth quarter that carried the Nugs to victory. Austin shoot really well, especially lately, especially in late, uh, late, late in the game in fourth quarter. Uh, we, we, we played, we played with, uh, with a lot of poise, with a lot of uh, fight in ourselves, especially after that first round that they, they had in the first quarter. Then we actually won the first quarter. Uh, I think our defense was really good uh, since, uh, <laughs> after, after uh, my bad, uh, especially in the first three quarters. Fourth quarter is a little bit, um, you know, they, they were kind of chasing. They, were, they had that uh, they need to score mentality. So um, the most important thing that we won the game, you know. Nicola, walk me through that last possession at the free throw line where a lot of times you see guys take that, that play off and just say, hey, I have an 80% free throw shoot at the line. I know he's going to make it. You were fighting for space in there and made a tip that kind of sealed that game. 
I mean, uh, just because uh, e- even if we miss, just maybe to take take some time, you know, Dane, Dane can Dane can uh, have really long range. He can shoot from everywhere. So just uh, we, I didn't want to give him a lot of time, you know. So if if Monte missed like he did, I just wanted to to fight for it a little bit, couple seconds. I think it was 3.7 or 3.8 on 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 the clock. But uh, I I want I want the I want the the, the re- I get the rebound and I score. So. And also, I talked about how guys like Austin Rivers give guys like you the space to work. Tonight we saw him hit four threes in the fourth quarter, and that gave you a lot more space to operate down the stretch. Talk about how big Austin Rivers was and how clutch he was for you guys. Yeah, in the he, he was really amazing. You know, just to have just to have a shooter. You know, the, the, the defense cannot help of him. You know, it's it's amazing. We know that he he is shooting the ball. That's that what that was he do. But uh, especially tonight, you know, he he won us the game. He brought that energy. He scored when we needed. Uh, he had he had big in the corner and one one deep from the from the slot area, left slot area. So uh, he was he was uh, actually his defense was really good today too. So he was he was really good tonight. Uh, game four of the series uh, that was the Joker on NBA TV. Game four of the series tomorrow in Portland. One game in the Eastern Conference last night. The Bucks made short work of the heat stomping a mud hole in Miami 113 to 84 to take a commanding 3 nothing series lead uh, Drew Holiday 19 points 12 assists for the Bucks who are one win away from getting revenge uh for last season's playoff loss to the Heat uh Chris Middleton had 22 points and Giannis had 17 points and 17 rebounds the Bucks can close out the series tomorrow in Miami. Tonight, three games on tap. The Knicks and Hawks play game three of their series in Atlanta. Uh, they are tied 1-1. The Nets can take a commanding 3-0 lead with a win over the Celtics tonight in Boston. And out west, the Mavs can take a 3-0 lead when they host the Clippers. When we come back, I mentioned the Knicks and the Hawks had some fallout from some idiot fan who tried to spit on Trey Young. Also some fallout from some idiot Jazz fans and fallout from some idiot Sixers fan. All that coming up next. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. Some other issues the NBA has had to deal with here in the past couple of days that really has taken away from what is happening on the court, and that is what's happening in the stands. And this is something that I talk about a lot, and I have talked about a lot in the last week or so because I'm, I'm – I've re- I'm I'm sick and tired of it. I'm tired of seeing fans acting like morons. And I said yesterday that's really like idiot is is the only word that comes to mind. Like when I think about these fans who just cross the line from, you know, booing or good-natured heckling and we talked about the situation with Russell Westbrook when a 76ers fan dumped popcorn on Westbrook as he was walking down the tunnel after he hurt his ankle the other night. 
There was another incident on Wednesday where a Knicks fan spit on Atlanta's Trey Young as Young was inbounding a ball or getting ready to inbound. And then there was an incident in Utah. Utah, by the way, really starting to become a fan base. You know, people want to talk about, you know, oh, like, oh, Philadelphia is so terrible. Utah is getting the worst kind of reputation right now. And it is not a reputation that Philadelphia fans are known for just being, you know, just nasty. I mean, you know, just yelling and booing and just being relentless. Utah fans are getting a reputation of just being flat-out racist. And what happened the other night did nothing to, you know, soften that reputation. And all three of these things happened on Wednesday. And to the NBA's credit, they have moved pretty quickly. The idiot who dumped popcorn on Westbrook has been banned indefinitely from a Wells Fargo Center where the Sixers play and had his 76ers season ticket membership revoked, which is I've, I've been calling for that for a long time now. The next idiot who spit on Trey Young, he has been banned from Madison Square Garden. He's gone. He ain't coming back. Now, again, indefinitely. And then there were three fans banned indefinitely by the Jazz because they reportedly made vulgar and racist comments to Ja Moran's parents. Not Ja Moran himself, his parents. The Jazz released a statement citing one verbal altercation that occurred uh, in Utah's win Wednesday night against the Grizzlies. T. Morant, who is the father of Ja Morant, said there were three separate incidents with male Jazz fans, and he said that each was handled quickly by arena security, and those three fans have been banned indefinitely. It's it's one thing to be an idiot and throw stuff at a player or spit on a player, which, by the way, during a pandemic, what are you doing? But you're gonna you're gonna hurl vulgar and racist comments to a player's parents? What the hell is wrong with people? This is what I'm talking about. This has gone to another level, and I, I credit the NBA and these teams and these arenas for acting quickly and swiftly and banning these idiots. From attending, now I don't like the word indefinitely. I don't like leaving it open-ended. They should be banned permanently. If you really, really want to deter these idiots from doing this. Look, I'm going to tell you right now, man. If you're listening right now and you're one of those people who behave like that and you're upset I'm calling you an idiot, too bad. Why don't you check yourself and self-evaluate. Evaluate where your life is. If you've ever gone to a game and thrown something at a player, you're an idiot. If you've ever gone to a game and cursed at a player's parents, you're an idiot. It's plain and simple. Don't get mad at me because you're an idiot. Here's ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski on how the NBA is handling these situations. Woj! 
The league wants those certainly to remain as isolated incidences. And, you know, so for a couple reasons. Number one, players should not have to be subjected to this kind of behavior. And number two, it, it has overshadowed what has been, uh, at least last night, a, a compelling postseason playoff. You're going to see more teams do what the Knicks were ready to do today, and that's offer legal remedies to players you know, who might want to file charges. They reached out to the Hawks and Trey Young's representation. Whether they wanted New York to file charges, he said no. He's just going to focus on Game 3. Uh, but I think that's going to continue to be the deterrent uh, you see with individual teams, which is the threat of prosecution, not just ejection, not just banishment from an arena, possible legal remedies. Uh, I, I think the league is hopeful and individual teams are hopeful that that will curb this behavior. What happened are just a few steps. More has to be done. And I, I said this yesterday. You, you ban them for life because all these people who were banned, they're all unidentified. They're all unidentified. We don't know who they are or where they're from. To me, that's not good enough. I want to know who they are. Put their stupid faces all over TV, in the newspapers. Let us know. Just shame them to absolutely no end. And Stephen A. Smith agrees. The fact that people feel that they can do anything they want, the primary reason they feel that way is because they don't have to worry about any repercussions, any ramifications for literally throwing something on another player, putting your, you know, figuratively speaking, putting your hands on them, because that's essentially what you did by throwing something on them. You have no right to do that. You can boo all you want to, but you have no right to do that. We've seen these kind of actions before. We've seen the woman in Atlanta going after LeBron James. We've seen the, the, the older white individual sticking up both middle fingers at Russell Westbrook at the New York Knicks game last night. I had no idea until this morning somebody actually spit over 50 cents sitting courtside and spit on Trey Young. That is inexcusable. Still in a pandemic. We're still in a pandemic. Now, Now that person should be arrested. That person right there should be arrested. Make no mistake about it. So the NBA definitely needs to come down heavily on them. But I think the media can also get involved in policing this kind of situation with this. Put the person's name on television. Put their face on television. Treat it like a mugshot. Put them on the jumbotron at the game. Make sure you embarrass and humiliate and publicize who the hell they are. Shame them just like you would do a player. If a player did something like this, they'd be plastered all over the media. They'd be plastered all over television and the like. How come we can't do that to the fans that engage in such insidious behavior? Publicize them, humiliate them, embarrass them, shame them, and in some cases, arrest them. See, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about, Stephen A. Come on. You want to be an idiot, you want to act like an idiot, you get treated like an idiot. Shame these people to no end where they just don't want to leave their house anymore. That's what you deserve. And not just the NBA. I'm talking NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL, Little League, any sporting event. You want to act like a jag, that's what you get. I am all for that 100%. 100%. And you heard Stephen A. mention about the idiot in New York spitting on Trey Young. Trey Young not pressing charges, by the way. He spit over 50 Cent, the rapper, and his girlfriend. Do you you know what could have happened to him? 
if that spit actually landed, hit its mark on 50 Cent's girlfriend? There's Bart Scott. I don't know who the hell some of these fans think they are, but I've never, ever in my life seen a gazelle challenge a lion. You know what I'm saying? If this same person was somewhere else, they wouldn't try that. You got a lot of bravery behind your Twitter hands. And you got a lot of bravery when you're sitting in the crowd. You lucky that some of that didn't fall on Cuban links. And then 50 Cent turned around and in his golden glove background, <laughs> hit you with the two piece and the biscuit, right? Because you deserved it. And for the fan that threw the popcorn, who the hell do you think you are? Your ticket allows you to come and see greatness, allows you to be entertained. Anything other than that, you don't have a right to. Negative. Negative. I hope this is a lesson for everybody. Everybody. Buy your ticket. Go to the game. Enjoy the game. Cheer. Boo. Eh, lighthearted heckling is fine. Some of the stuff here about John Morant and what this one Utah fan said to him, which got him ejected, is just ridiculous. I can't even say it on the air. Why would you do that? You wouldn't say it to his face in a dark alley, would you? So why are you saying it in an, a public NBA arena? It makes no sense to me. People got to start acting right, man. I'm telling you. Full force on these idiots. Prosecution, charges, embarrassing, shame them, everything to stop this crap from happening ever again. All right, our number one done coming up. Going to rock around the region. Then our Rush Friday feature with Joe Shuda. All that's coming up next. Stick around. WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. All right, before we get today's uh, Rush Friday feature, let's rock around the region. I want to rock right now. And we start with Major League Baseball, where the Orioles' losing streak is now up to 10 games. After a 5-1 loss to the White Sox in Chicago, your mean Mercedes, I can't pronounce his name. Mercedes, your mean Mercedes. My goodness, what is wrong with me? Homered and had a two-run single for Chicago. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Freddie Galvis hit a solo homer for Baltimore's only run. Trey Mancini was hit by a pitch. I'm not laughing about that. I'm laughing about my idiocy. Hit by a pitch in the first inning and left the game with a bruised right elbow. X-rays were negative. The O's 10-game slide is their longest since they dropped 10 straight in June of 2019. Elsewhere, the Cubs, they are looking to extend the Pirates' losing streak by completing a three-game sweep in Pittsburgh, and it helps when they play terrible defense like this. The Pirates, that is. Here's the 0-2 home and a swing and a ground ball on to third base. He took a neck-high pitch and hit it on the ground to third. Now Baez running back toward home plate. Tag him. Tag him. Tag him quickly. And what did Craig do there? They get a run out of that, and now they got to get the out at first. And they throw it into right field. That's going to get a run for the Cubs. Oh, my. What a loony play. And he's in at second base. Just tag him out. What was that? The Cubs are going to get a run, and Baez is safe at second base on a routine ground out to third. Oh, the Calliopes can be heard from here to Sewickley. Quite frankly, one of the worst baseball plays in the history of baseball. In modern baseball, it has to be. 
Will Craig, I can't explain it again. I don't have the time. But you, you haven't seen it. You got to look at it. Find the video. Will Craig just, I don't know. All he had to do was touch first, and he, and he didn't. He, he didn't touch first. I don't know. I don't know why he didn't. This is awful. Anyway, the call right there on the Pirates Radio Network, 5-3 uh, the final. The Cubs win, and they sweep the Bucks, uh, handing them their sixth straight loss. Brian Reynolds, Gregory Polanco, Michael Perez all homered for the Pirates, but they were all solo homers. And the Nationals and Reds sort of played a doubleheader yesterday in D.C. First, they had to finish a game that was suspended from Wednesday night. The Nationals were leading uh, that game 3-0 after four innings, and they would build on that lead when play resumed. Big gap right center, second baseman in right field. And that's perfectly placed. No second baseman there. And the Nats have a two-run sixth inning to lead 5-0. The call right there on Mid-Atlantic Sports Net 5-3 the final as the Nationals got the win in the regularly scheduled game, Sonny Gray pitched six innings of two-hit ball as the Reds won 3-0. High school baseball, Isaac Uphold struck out 13 in just five innings as Southern won its third straight game 6-4 over Mountain Ridge. Uh, Elsewhere, Zach Hollenbeck had a triple, two doubles, and a couple RBI as Northern beat Allegheny 11-2. Jake Rush, a complete game five hitter for the Huskies, who are now 12-1. That win was also win number 400 for Northern head coach Phil Carr. In high school softball, Alexa Uphold struck out 19 as Northern beat Bishop Walsh uh, 3-1. And in college football, the start times and broadcast partners for the first three West Virginia games were announced yesterday. The Mountaineers opened the season Saturday, September 4th at 3.30 at Maryland. That game will be on ESPN. The Mountaineers' home opener against Long Island, that'll be a tough game, on September 11th will be at 5 o'clock. Good luck finding that one. It'll be on ESPN Plus and something called Big 12 Now. And then the following Saturday, the Mountaineers will host Virginia Tech. That game will be at noon and on FS1. And that is your Rock Around the Region uh, brought to you by the Cap Rally Group. My main man, Joe Shuda. Catch all his stuff on his website, 2MinuteTO.com. That's the number 2MinuteTO.com. Today's feature, Kevin Keating, who is an autograph authenticator and prolific autograph collector. He started getting autographs way back in 1969. Collected 12,000 autograph baseballs. He has a book out called Waiting for Sign, Volume 1, Volume 2, Coming out this summer. So here is our Rush Friday feature, Joe Shuda, with autograph expert, Kevin Keating. It's time for the Rush Friday feature with Joe Shuda. My guest on the Rush Friday feature began collecting baseball autographs. A half century ago, and along with his signatures, he has collected a lifetime of memories with numerous players. He shared those memories as the author of Waiting for a Sign, Volume 1, highlights and inside stories from a lifetime of collecting baseball autographs. Kevin Keating, thanks for joining us. Let's talk some baseball. Thanks, Joe. Great to be here. What's so special about an autograph? 
You know, an autograph, unlike anything else, is a physical connection to the person who signed it, right? And that's what, in my mind, really makes it unique to anything else somebody can collect. And it really matters not in so many ways whether you got the autograph yourself or it was handed down to you or given to you as a gift from someone who maybe you don't even know particularly well, or if it's something that you buy through an auction company or that you get yourself. I mean, ideally you get the autograph yourself, but by the time I was collecting, Babe Ruth was dead for many years. So for me, having a Babe Ruth autograph is no less special in that respect because it's a connection to Babe Ruth. I can hold the baseball that I have signed by Ruth and look at it and know that he held this ball and he created the autograph. It's just a physical connection that transcends time and any intermediaries between you and and the actual signer of the autograph. And when you possess an autograph, you actually own a moment of that person's life. And I think that's what makes autographs so special. We're speaking with Kevin Keating, his book, Waiting for a Sign, available at Amazon. A terrific read. How did this fascination with collecting baseball autographs begin? You know, I started collecting baseball cards in 1969. I was 10 years old, and I, I immediately fell in love with baseball that year. And that I, we were living in Evanston, just outside of Chicago. The Cubs were going to win the pennant that year, watching the, the rise and collapse of the Cubs and the, you know, the rise of the Miracle Mets. I didn't realize then that I was really watching unfold before me, you know, a really significant chapter in baseball history. I mean, 69 was my introduction to baseball, but then I felt all the emotions that the city of Chicago went through that year, but I didn't realize how unique that year was for baseball with regards to the Mets and the Cubs and how that all played out. But it hooked me on, on baseball and I tell people I'm really just a failure in life because the only thing I ever really wanted to do was play Major League Baseball. I wasn't good enough to do that. So everything else just kind of happened along the way. But getting back to the autograph thing, about 1970, my dad, who worked in the city of Chicago in the Loop, he was passing a hotel and he noticed a few people get an autograph with somebody as he exited. And when he asked what was that all about, they said, oh, you know, the the, uh, San Francisco Giants are, are staying here. So my dad ran off to some store and bought a baseball and came back just in time to get Willie Mays and a few of the other Giants on the ball. And he came home with that. And suddenly I discovered a means for getting autographs. And so I started going into the city with my dad on occasion and standing in front of the hotel and collecting autographs that way and meeting these people that were heroes to me. Even somebody I'd never heard of, if they were on a major league roster, I wanted their autograph. And, you know, that that was kind of the beginning for me. Well, what's really great about this book is the stories, not just you getting the autographs. And a great one is when your brother was born, you had an encounter with a Hall of Famer, Lou Boudreau, and explain what happened there. Yeah, so my brother was born on uh, August 16, 1970, and I was 11, and my best friend at the time, Bob Wish, his parents were taking Bobby to the game. So, you know, my mom was at the hospital in labor, as it turned out, and so it was convenient for my dad to kind of let me go. So I went with Bobby to the game, and we knew Bujo announced for the Cubs. We figured out where he would have to get to the press box. So we were standing there, and we, we got his autograph on the program, and then three years later, I went back. Back, as it turned out, on the same day, August 16th, 1973, my brother's third birthday. But getting back to Boudreaux, I, I walked up to him with the program and I said, Lou, you signed this for my brother three years ago on the day he was born. Would you sign it again? And he said, yeah, sure, of course. What's his name? And I said, James. And so he wrote to James, happy birthday, Lou Boudreaux. But, you know, back then, it was so easy to access these guys and they were so nice and there wasn't any money in it. So the money's kind of changed a lot of the procedures and how things are done and people's reluctance 
reluctance to sign in that kind of a loose setting. But back then it was really innocent. And by the time I got out of high school, I was proof of that. I had over 10,000 baseball autographs. We talk about the age of innocence and you're meeting ball players, getting autographs. This is just terrific. But then you meet Rod Carew and reality strikes as he tells you you need to do something. Yes, I'm 11 years old. It's my third time going to the hotel, and, I, and my, I'm still on a leash with my dad, right? So my dad is with me all the time. So we're there, and it's just two of us, and we're waiting outside the hotel. And I had five guys I wa- really wanted to get that day. I wanted to get Carew, of course, Tony Oliva, Bob Allison, Harmon Killebrew, and Frank Crosetti. Crosetti was the third base coach, and of course, he was the old Yankee who played with Ruth and Garrick in the 30s. So I really wanted to get him. And Crosetti comes out, and I recognize him, and I get his autograph. I shake his hand. I'm thrilled, right? Because I've just shaken the hand of somebody who shook the hand of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. So I thought that was just the coolest thing. So then the bus kind of lumbers off, and I've got about 15 different players, but none of the other key guys that I really wanted. So my dad says, well, look, maybe they missed the bus. Let's stick around. I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's stick around. So sure enough, within five minutes, out walk three players. And clearly, to me, I see Carew and Oliva. I don't recognize the third guy, but I can tell he's a player too. I go up and these guys are walking very slowly, but they've got to go about 100 feet to get to a cab that's waiting for him on the curb. So I go up to Oliva because he was the easiest one to get to first. He signs my ball. And I go to the guy in between and I get him. And then I go to Carew. And we've got about 50 feet left when I hand the ball to Carew, but he doesn't take it. You know, he's got a toothpick out of his mouth and sunglasses on an overcast day and never looks down at me. He simply says, son, why don't you take a long walk off a short pier? Well, I don't know what that means. I'm 11 years old. I've never heard that expression. It makes no sense to me. So I just say, sure, Mr. Carew, would you please sign my ball? And I must have asked three or four times. He never said another word. I walked with them to the taxi and uh, opened the door and you know, let them in and wish them all good luck at the game. My dad overheard Carew say something. He didn't know what it was. So he said, what did Rod Carew say to you, son? Look, he didn't sign your ball. I'm like, well, he didn't sign my ball. And this is what he said. So my dad gets steamed. He writes a long letter to the Minnesota Twins complaining about Rod Carew. Can we get a two-page letter back from the, the Minnesota Twins PR director, Tom Mee, explaining that, you know, Rod's been injured. He's had a rough year, blah, blah, blah. But the ironic twist of the story was, you know, I've met Rod Carew at least 30 times after that. And he is the nicest guy. In fact, the next time I met him was a few years later, and I was a little bit older. And he must have spent 30 minutes talking to me, giving me batting tips. He signed like 18 things for me. He offered me tickets to the game. And he's always been that way, except for that very first time. Now, I'm not making excuses for what he said to me. However, I will say that, you know, I learned a really valuable lesson through meeting Rod Crew multiple times, which is, you know, sometimes when you approach these players, they're human beings. You don't know what they've just gone through. And for fans, when they meet players and they get a negative impression because the encounter isn't one that they enjoy, they don't realize that to them, you're just another person who's disturbing their day and asking them to give you a favor by taking a picture or spending time with you or getting an autograph or whatever. And it's really unfair to make a presumption about person's character if they happen not to respond in the way that you want to. So I would just remind fans that players really don't owe you an autograph as much as you might think that they do. And if they do give you an autograph or they're kind to you, that's a great thing. But if they don't, you know, I wouldn't hold it against them. Kevin Keating, our guest, his book, Waiting for a Sign, it's about collecting autographs, but it's much more than that. You began writing to ball players, and Joe McCarthy could foresee the future about where you were going baseball-wise, not maybe to the major leagues, but being a writer. 
I do like to share the stories of these guys because the ones that I share in the book really had a profound impact on me at the time and in many cases throughout the rest of my life. And McCarthy was one of those guys. You know, I wrote to him several times and he always signed everything. I mean, there were times when I'd mail him 10 index cards and he'd always, you know, sign them all and typically would put a Hall of Fame plaque postcard in there and personalize it to me. And as he was getting up in age, I wrote to him one time and I, I asked him, I think the question was, Mr. McCarthy, when Lou Gehrig asked you to pull him from the lineup what went through your mind and he wrote me back he said something to the effect that dear Kevin I'm gonna if I live long enough I'll be 90 years old next April I wish I could tell you what I recall from that moment but I, I simply can't do that you know my memory is not that great anymore but I will say that your the letter you wrote me was certainly one of the nicest I've ever received and it's going to go in my scrapbooks 1977, you enlisted in the Army, graduated from West Point in 82, and thank you for your service. Being in the service was an end to be able to talk to a lot of ballplayers, to meet them, and the respect they showed you. And How did that benefit you from the point of view of, of your service and how the players reacted to that? At that time, the old-timers who were still around were guys like Johnny Mize and Warren Spahn, Bob Feller, Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio. Those guys had all served. They'd all been in the service. Willie Mays was in the service. But so many people had served. Whitey Ford, during the Korean War, he served stateside, but he was in the service. So all these guys had served, and they were basically cut out of the same cloth, you know, as the rest of us. That was the differential, I think, the fact that they had served as well. And so they saw in me somebody who loved baseball and understood baseball, could speak baseball at their level because I'd read voraciously as a kid. I've got a good memory so I could I could spout out facts and get into conversations at their level about the game and the players that they played against and the history of the game and so on. And then, of course, with my Army background, it, it was meaningful to them. So, yes, it definitely opened doors. I will say this, though. The players from that era, the money's a differential as well, you know, along with what we're talking about, about the service. Because players, I don't know that there's any Anybody playing, you know, in the major leagues today who's ever served a day in any of the services, I would doubtful if there are, I'm unaware of anybody like that. But back then, all those guys had done some time in, in one of the services. The money and the service almost go hand in hand in terms of differentiating how players saw themselves then. They didn't see themselves as being different in any way from society. They were a part of society who happened to play baseball. But they were dependent on society, had to go back to society and depend on society for the rest of their lives. Whereas today, there's just so much money being thrown at these guys that unfortunately, in my opinion, some of them just never really get grounded in the same way that everybody else does, if that makes sense. The Joe Sewell story was just tremendous how you visited him and, and talk about that. Well, uh, you know, I'd written to Joe as a kid, and Joe was fantastic. You could ask him any question in your letter to Joe, and he would do his best to answer it in great detail. And so I started asking Joe for batting tips, and he'd tell me, well, you know, you got to learn the strike zone. you got to do this. you got to do that. So anyway, I was getting ready to leave the Army, and it was 1988, and I knew Joe lived down in Alabama, and I was down in Fort Benning in Georgia. So I wrote to Joe, and I included a couple of copies of letters he'd sent me as a kid. And I said, hey, we exchanged letters back when I was a lot younger. Now I'm captain in the Army, getting ready to leave the Army. I'm, I'm moving up north. I'd love to meet you if I could. Before I leave, I'll drive down and see if that's okay. And sure enough, you know, it was okay with the family. So I showed up 
at the door as scheduled. And Joe had had a fall um, turkey hunting, and I guess he fractured a couple of vertebrae in his back, and he was just recovering. And I was the first person they'd allowed to see him in some time after his recovery. And I was supposed to just stay for a few minutes, but we hit it off so much that they invited me for lunch and dinner. And I ended up having to drive all night just to get back, get to Washington, D.C., where I needed to be by the next morning. We became fast friends. And I was told that night before I left, you know, look, you know, we want you to come back for Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we became very good friends, you know, up until he passed away. You know, he was sharp as a tack and his ability to tell stories and paint an image. I mean, you really feel felt like you weren't listening to a story when Joe was talking. You were actually there present watching it happen. And I was able to record some of those stories on tape, which I then put into the book so the reader gets to hear those stories. The book, Waiting for a Sign, Volume 1. We are going to be talking about Volume 2 later on during baseball season. Finally, let's wrap it up with a story. So what you did when you were in school, and could you relate that? Yeah, well, I was in eighth grade and I had worked out a deal with my parents that they would let me ditch school one day a month as long as I kept my school uh, grades at a B average or better. They let me skip school a day to go get autographs. So this particular day, with my parents' permission, I was in front of the hotel getting autographs in the New York Mets. And as it turned out, there wasn't a game that day. So the players were coming in and out all day long, and I was standing outside. It was probably 40 degrees, too. It was a really bitter cold day, as I recall. And unbeknownst to me, across the street was the Chicago Sun-Times building. I didn't know that, but I didn't know that there was a writer in his office who was watching me. I'd gotten his attention somehow. And according to him, every time he looked out the window over the course of several hours, I was standing in the same place, motionless. Autograph collecting is a lot like playing baseball. You know, you basically pick up a position and you stand there and you do nothing until there's some action. And sometimes there is an action for a while. So his curiosity got the best of him. And the name, name of the writer was Bob Green. And Bob had a column in the Sun-Times and later became much more famous when he did several books. I think he's written about 20 books and several bestsellers. But in any event, I'd never heard of him, but I didn't read the Sun-Times, but everybody else did at the time. So Bob comes out and he introduces himself and explains to me what got his attention and what was I doing there? I explained what I was doing. He said, your parents know you're here? I was like, yeah, my mom wrote an excuse saying I was homesick. And as soon as I said that, he pulled out his notepad. He said, you mind if I do my column on you in the paper tomorrow? I'm like, sure, no problem. I didn't really think it through. So he ended up sending a photographer over there. He probably spent 20 minutes asking me questions and observing me. You know, I didn't really believe what was going on until the photographer showed up and started taking pictures of me. And the pictures he took were of me getting Jim Fergosi's autograph. And that picture showed up in the column the next day that Bob wrote and that everybody, it seemed, you know, read the column. And so I wound up getting called into Mr. Zangi's office, the vice principal in charge of student discipline. I knew the gig was up at that point. I walked in and there was the paper spread out on Mr. Zangi's desk and he said, Kevin, where were you yesterday? And next to the paper was my mom's note explaining that I was homesick with a cold. And I knew it wasn't time to lie, not that I was inclined to do so anyway. But I was in Chicago getting autographs, sir. And he said, I know that. And then he started screaming at me and threatening me that he just got off the phone with the superintendent of the school district. And, you know, he should suspend me from school for 
what I had done and this isn't tolerated and I had to promise him as long as I was in eighth grade I'd never do that again he said as long as you're at Algonquin Middle School you got to promise me you'll never do this again or I'll suspend you and that was easy because I had like three weeks left and no plans to go to the hotel you know in the intervening time so I made that promise gladly and he dismissed me and as I was leaving I couldn't get out of that office fast enough by the way but as I was leaving a different voice came out of his mouth and he and I heard him say Kevin and I turned around and I said, yes, sir. He said, did you happen to get Yogi Berra's autograph? Because Berra was managing the Mets at the time. And I said, yes, sir. I got him three times. And he said, you know, Yogi was my favorite player when he caught on the Yankees. And he kind of wistfully looked at me and shooed me away. And I got out of there and I thought, man, thank goodness that guy was a baseball fan. My dad encouraged me to give him one of my Yogi Berra autographs, but I wasn't about to part with any of those. But I think Mr. Zaney and his love for baseball saved me that day. And I managed to get out of eighth grade without ever going into his office again. The book, Waiting for a Sign, Volume 1, highlights and inside stories from a lifetime of collecting baseball autographs. When is Volume 2 coming out? Um, this summer, yeah. Just finishing up the, uh, the last chapter that I'm doing, and, uh, and it's ready to go. So which hope, I'm hoping to have it out by the All-Star Game. Kevin Keating, thanks for joining us on the Rush Friday feature, and let's play ball. Thanks, Joe. Play ball. This is the Morning Rush. A reminder tonight, Nationals baseball, weather permitting right here on this very station, Nationals wrapping up their nine-game home, yeah, nine homestand with the first of three games against the Brewers. A pregame is at 635, a first pitch shortly after 7 o'clock. Weather just a mess this weekend. Of all, of all weekends. During, you know, Frank, is Kaiser graduating this weekend as well? I don't know. Does Mineral County hold it on the same weekend? I'm not sure. I'm interested in Frankfurt because my son is graduating this weekend. It's supposed to be tomorrow. But now I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm so fed up with everything just being in question, right? This past year or so with the pandemic, everything has been in question. Everything has been uncertain. Nothing has been set, and everything is just so up in the air. Like, it's been so absolutely frustrating. And it always seems like it's the final thing. And we were talking about this, my family and I, the other day. It's always like the last thing that is the most uncertain. Going all the way back to, like, you know, because you listened to the show before, you know, uh, my son ran cross-country, ran, past tense. That's crazy to think about. For Frankfurt, they won a state title back in October. Like they got a season in, but then right before this, you know, the state meet, that was the most uncertain time of all. We, we had no idea if that meet was going to happen. It, it was everybody was on edge. They got all the way. You know, fortunately, they did get the race and they did win. But that week and a half or so leading up was absolutely brutal. You fast forward to. Tonight, they have a track meet out in Morgantown. It'll be my son's last race. It's supposed to rain and thunderstorm and Lord knows what else. Like the past couple meets have been beautiful weather. Beautiful. And then today comes, and I have no idea what I'm driving into in Morgantown this evening. None. And now this weekend, 
They make it through a school year, one of the most messed up school years in the history of history. They finally get to the end, to graduation tomorrow, and it's supposed to rain like all get out. All the way up to the end, they have no idea what's going to happen. You hate to wish time away. If you've put kids through school before, you understand how bittersweet graduation can be. So you don't want to wish time away. You want to hold on as a parent as long as possible before sending your children out after high school. But man, can't wait for it to be over. (laughs) I seriously can't. Just wanted to get here. Whether it's tomorrow or if there's a rain date Sunday, I think there's a rain date Sunday. And I don't think they're making a call on tomorrow until like noon tomorrow. I guess they're just going to they're going to figure out what the weather's going to bring. They would have been too much to ask. Too much to ask for a nice day tomorrow for graduation. It would have been too much. Eh, way too much. Instead, 70% chance of rain with a high of 55 on May 29th tomorrow. Yeah, too much to ask for a nice day. Why even think it? Anyway. Let's talk some pucks. Last night, two games were on tap. Stanley Cup playoffs. The Canadiens and the Maple Leafs. Canadiens trying to stay alive. They trailed the series three games to one. They had a 3 nothing lead last night. 3 nothing lead. Toronto comes all the way back, a goal in the second, two goals in the third, to force overtime. Cole Caulfield has a breakaway with Suzuki, 2-0. Caulfield, Suzuki, and he scores! Nick Suzuki wins it in overtime for Montreal, and game six is on Saturday. Nick Suzuki, man on the spot, buries it on a 2-0 breakaway. Montreal, I call, by the way, on TSN uh, 690. So the Canadians blow the 3-0 lead. They win in overtime 4-3. They stay alive. And they force a game six tomorrow back in Montreal. That game, oh, by the way, will be the first game that the Canadian government will allow fans since March of 2020, last year. There has not been a single fan at a hockey game in Canada since March of 2020. Tomorrow will be the first time, and they're only allowing like 2,500 in. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> only 20, slowly but surely. Here we are in the States. We got full capacity going all over the place, and Canada's just now getting around to letting fans in the building tomorrow. 2,500. So the Canadians extend the series to a six-game tomorrow. Also last night, a great series, the best series of the playoffs so far, the Hurricanes and the Predators. The Canes, 3-2 series lead going into last night, chance to wrap things up. Nashville trying to protect home ice. The game has been, or the series has been phenomenal. I do believe like the last three games or two of the last three went to overtime. So, what did you expect last night? Aho, McKinnon, Teravainen up front. Hamilton and Slavin, who connected on the goal. Hamilton with it again. He whistles. He scores! The series is over! Jacob Slavin sending the Hurricanes into the second round! 
The call right there on 99.9 The Fan. You heard the man, Jacob Slavin. The game-winning goal in overtime. The Canes win the game. They win the series four games to two. They move on to take on the defending Stanley Cup champion, Lightning, in the next round. And I talked about attendance last night. Guess what the attendance was in Nashville last night? 14,107. I watched part of the game last night. And the place was just packed. Just packed. People, you know, there's still people wearing masks in the crowd, but the place was packed. It was loud. It was raucous. 14,000. There'll be 2,500 in Montreal tomorrow. 14,000 uh, in Nashville. One game on tap tonight, and it is one of the sweetest sounding phrases in sports. Game seven of the Stanley Cup playoffs. A game seven in Vegas, Golden Knights hosting the Minnesota Wild. Of course, the series tied 3 3. It's a nine o'clock puck drop. Vegas had a 3 1 series lead. Minnesota's won the final two or last two games to force a decisive. Game seven, there is absolutely nothing sweeter in sports than in game seven in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And I'll fight anybody who disagrees. Not literally, but you know what I mean. Tomorrow, I mentioned Montreal and Toronto. Also, a second-round matchup. The Islanders and Bruins getting their second-round matchup underway. Game one tomorrow uh, in Boston. So there you go. A little recap of the night and uh, the future in the Stanley Cup playoffs. All right, when we come back, quick break, and then a former Mountaineer makes a pretty good impression in his Major League debut against the most storied franchise in Major League Baseball history. We'll talk about that next. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM, 1230 WCMD. This is the Morning Rush. Before we get out of here and start our long weekend, a reminder, no show on Monday because of the holiday. Before we skedaddle, let's check out the player who delivered, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. How about Former West Virginia Mountaineer Alec Manoa, who made his major league debut yesterday for the Blue Jays, and oh, what a debut it was. Trying to finish the sixth inning here. One, two, and a slider that Torres reaches for. Weak ground ball to short. The throw bounced across, but a pick by Rowdy Telez. A little fist bump from Alec Manoa, who has now thrown six scoreless innings in the Bronx. The call on Sportsnet 590, the fan. The 23-year-old righty went six scoreless innings with seven strikeouts. He allowed just two hits. Never allowed a runner to second base. He walked two as the Jays beat the Yanks in the Bronx 2-0. Now, since it was the first game of a doubleheader, it was only a seven-inning game. So Manoa was one inning shy of actually throwing a complete game. 60 of his 88 pitches went for strikes, which is pretty impressive considering that he kind of got off to a rough start. He threw a four-pitch walk 
to start the game. But after that, he said he uh, he kind of found his groove. You know, it's just uh, just about not letting the moment get too big. You know, I train extremely hard, um, and you know, I'd like to believe that my training is harder than what it is out there. So, um, you know, that's that's the the success that comes out of you know what everything that happens in the background. So. Just being out there, it was it was the same as, you know, if I was in the weight room or running a sprint or everything like that, it's like, hey, let's just compete right here. Give it all you got, um, you know. So hearing the crowd, hearing everything, um, you know, just wanted to go out there and just give it all I got. Those first four pitches were <laughs> were the most nervous, you know, or most excitement I had, uh, you know, all day. And then after those four, it was kind of just like, I don't want to suck. So, you know, let's lock it in right here and um, let's, start, let's start pitching. You know, forget about everything else we got to pitch. So um, locked it in with Bo. Uh, made sure that, you know, who I had with the, the double play and just got in a rhythm of playing baseball and forgetting everything else. That's, a, that's an actually, that's a pretty good philosophy right there. That's pretty good motivation. Uh, I didn't want to suck. That's pretty much <laughs> straightforward and to the point. A buddy of mine who's, whose son plays football and baseball and some other things, he would always, jokingly now, he would always uh, tell his boy like, if he was leaving for a game, he was say, hey, all right, you go have fun. And don't suck. So that's that was Manoa's approach. I didn't want to suck. And he didn't. After that four-pitch walk, start the game, boy, he just he put it in cruise control. And uh, Yankees head coach, or head coach, manager Aaron Boone, said the rookie was impressive. I, I think he his fastball played up a little bit. Um, looked like he moved it around. Mixed in his secondary well. Um, you know, I thought in the middle innings there, both sides was a little bit t- challenging. Uh, you know, the shadows rolled in, but but he was in control, you know, the entire game. You know, four-pitch walk to start the game, and then he got his command in line and, you know, had three pitches going for him, and, you know, we just obviously didn't mount much. He got a tipper cap. He pitched well and beat us today. So, um, look, that's always one of the challenges as a hitter. You know, you prefer, obviously, having some experience. Obviously, now you're able to you know, have as much information as possible. And uh, we did see him in spring um, where he pitched really well against us in spring, where I actually thought his fastball was even a little more lively in spring. Um, but, you know, we, you know, we got to find a way to, to create a little bit more traffic there and, and, and come through in some spots. Now, Manoa pitched three years in Morgantown. Uh, in 2019, he went nine and four, a 2.08 ERA, Later that year in 2019, he was taken 11th overall by Toronto. Now, I couldn't play minor league ball last year because of, you know, pandemic. In three starts with AAA Buffalo this season, he went 3-0 with a 0.50 ERA with 27 strikeouts in 18 innings. You see now why the Blue Jays called him up. You see, I mean, he's... You look at his career in Morgantown, you look at the very short work at AAA Buffalo, and now he shuts down the Yankees last night. Everything trending upwards for Alec Manoa uh, in the bigs. No reason to believe why he can't be there for a long time to stay. Uh, One more thing before we get out of here. Uh, Some golf news. Tiger Woods uh, gave a brief interview with Golf Digest. It was the first interview he had done since that accident back in February that put him in a hospital for uh, about a month. And he said that this rehab is different from the other rehabs because, I mean, the man got to learn how to walk again. 
And somebody asked him about whether or not he hoped to play golf ever again. And he, he wouldn't answer the question. Here's ESPN's Bob Herrig. He did say the rehab he's going through, he's used to going through rehab. You know, five back surgeries, five knee surgeries, but he said this is the most painful one. And his big goal is just to getting back to being able to walk on his own. He's not been able to do that yet. Uh, obviously, we're basically three months past. I think we all expected this was going to be a long process. But it is the first words he said, and, uh, you know, we're going to keep hoping that he gives us a little bit more as we keep progressing down the road. Man, think about that. The accident was February 23rd. He still can't walk on his own. Now, I understand as a member of the media, you have to, you have to ask questions. You have to ask, the, you have to, about is he hoping to play golf again? But, you know, let's not, let's not put the cart before the horse. The man literally has to learn how to walk again before he can even think about getting on a golf course, which is why he didn't answer the question. I under, I understand why the question was asked, and I understand why he didn't want to answer it because he's got a long road ahead. I wouldn't be shocked if he never played golf again. Seriously. Like, maybe enough is enough. Maybe Tiger's been through enough. Granted, some of it was, you know, his own doing. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he's had a ton of time to reflect over the last three months that maybe his career's just over. Maybe he just fades, I don't know, maybe he becomes a, a TV guy, an analyst or whatever. I would not be shocked if he does not come back and play golf. Now, his drive, his competitiveness, all that, that we know about Tiger, that, that may prevent him from just, you know, fading away. But this, you know, super serious. Obviously, he can't even walk on his own right now, let alone think about playing golf. So we'll see. We'll see. All right, reminder, tonight, Nationals baseball. They open a three-game weekend series at home against Milwaukee. Uh, catch the game right here, pregame, uh, 635, first pitch uh, right after uh, 7 o'clock. Again, if you missed any of today's show, uh, Joe's interview with Kevin Keating, uh, autograph. Expert extraordinaire. You can catch it all on our podcast page on the free Podbean app, which I'll be uploading probably within the next hour or so. No show on Monday. Enjoy the long holiday. Please remember why it's a holiday in the first place. Take time to reflect. And we'll see you back here on Tuesday. Amanda Mangan, Tri State Today, coming up next. Stick around right here. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, WCMD. Ah, see ya.